Welcome backwards to Vodi Speak, continuing with the Bhagavad Gita and mentality of what it means to be a warrior. Studying military figures, artists, yogis, coming back to the central principle that the Bhagavad Gita, the quintessential text on yoga, is in the context of a war. I was listening to a retelling on some level of Crazy Horse, Lakota Warrior, and recognized as a Hayoka. And it was interesting because it was on a Navy SEAL podcast Jocko podcast and it's very interesting because you have this former Navy SEAL uh, reading depictions of the Lakota Inipi sweat lodge ceremony and reading about how Crazy Horse was considered a backwards clown doing the opposite of what everyone expected and I just thought that was interesting just to see how oftentimes even though someone appears to be something on one level of the surface it's interesting when you listen to what I have to say and kind of go deeper into it that they have a little bit more depth and understanding than maybe on first appearance would come across and what I appreciated about the book that they were drawing from about Crazy Horse was that uh, from my understanding, it was written by someone from the Lakota culture, because I think that's a really important thing. Uh, as I've talked about on this podcast a number of times, having Native and Indigenous people share the stories of their cultures and what's happening in the present day in their communities and how they've been affected by the genocide of the empire. Empire, not in a positive connotation there more thinking along the lines of star wars and uh anyways and uh understanding letting you know what teokas and ghost horse lakota um activist and uh radio host recommended when we hosted him at our community which is allow indigenous and native people the opportunity to speak don't interrupt them don't impose anything on them hear what they have to say so i appreciated the fact that uh on a former military person who promotes a lot of things about the military which you know obviously this is where we have a, a dissonance but you know drawing on the stories of the lakota from the perspective of the Lakota, so I appreciated that. And what I wanted to share about it was, uh, once Crazy Horse showed tremendous bravery and courage in battle, which was something that was highly regarded by the Lakota, uh, and the way that they described it, though, is they would kind of do these raids on other tribes, the Crow, and there was a couple others, I don't recall the name, and... You know, go back and forth. It would just kind of be like they would steal horses and 
then there, you know, every now and then there'd be skirmishes and someone would die, but there was never like this systematic industrialized violence that existed in native cultures. Really, that was something that came forth from the Europeans. Um, and, you know, being a warrior was something when I, when I was listening to the book and the author described the Lakota perspective of how being a warrior is of the highest value and to die in battle is of the greatest value. And they would say, you know, Hokahe, you know, today is a good day to die. <laughs> that perspective was something that was highly esteemed in the culture because they were seen as someone sacrificing. They were seen as someone giving of themselves for others and uh, bearing, you know, witness to the um, the beyond. And there's an interesting story that came across from a Joseph Campbell book about a warrior who was captured uh, from one native tribe, captured by another native tribe sometime in the 1800s, and the Jesuits were present when this happened. And when the warrior was captured, he was sent to be executed. But he was not being sent to be executed as a slave or as someone that was uh, being degraded or tortured or something like that, as might you might oftentimes see perhaps in the present day from, you know, all sides. You have people on the United States, uh, how do they say, Abu Ghraib, right? There was that situation in Iraq, and then you have people like... Uh, al-qaeda and things like that it's like there's just there's kind of like debauchery and butchering on both sides in a lot of ways uh what's interesting here at the native culture though is that they were bringing him to be executed but adorned almost as a christ-like figure and they were worshiping worshiping him not as a human but as a god and they were bowing to him in like tremendous respect and they were saying the jesuits were saying that this is because he is someone who has gone to the transcendental reality or is about to at least because of his self-sacrifice so he's leaving beyond the plane of opposites he's coming to the plane of you know true unity with the divine because he's given himself for a larger cause and so they recognize him as a christ-like sacrificial hero and i think this is something that's super profound about the uh, traditional native and indigenous cultures. And uh, on the Jacko podcast, they were talking about this as well. They're also reflecting on, you know, the power of ritual in these traditional cultures and how that's something that our, our current culture has lost and saying how, you know, there there's a ritual around death. There's a ritual and it's commonplace death because it's as common as birth, right? <laughs> this is what the Bhagavad Gita is telling us. And these traditional cultures, it's really interesting how they provide a context for understanding it and how in a lot of uh, Amer a lot of American society, this is something that we're totally devoid of. We're totally removed from it, it's sterilized, it's sanitized. We don't know what happens. Uh, the person passed away and there's not this sense of a ritual around the death uh, very much coming back to what I was talking about a lot po last podcast with when I was in Varanasi and the man was um, burning his father I believe it was then releasing him into the Ganges 
with the understanding that to die or to be uh, cremated in, in Varanasi, the Hindu center of their universe, of their cosmology, is a ticket to enlightenment. And obviously that's kind of a more of like a folk religious kind of perspective rather than a spiritual one. Obviously, from the depth of these traditions in the East, you have to do the work <laughs> to come into this place, not just conveniently have your body uh, die in that spot. Maybe, who knows, I don't, but this is what I hear. And uh, it's a really interesting thing just about this this concept of like ritual. And so in the ritual in the Lakota, right, is that uh, from what I understand, they're given one name in the beginning. And interesting about Crazy Horse, he was, I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, light-haired or something like that was the name they called him. He was kind of like a freak in a lot of ways from the the little depictions that I have understood about him um, that I've come across at least, which is he was really shy. He was really quiet, uh, had a really hard time being social, preferred to be alone, and his hair color was different and was just kind of an oddball in that respect, but also a highly trained warrior. And they say that he was of the highest caliber not necessarily because of his capacity but his refusal to quit he would just keep going he was relentless in his process and then later in life because of a series of things that happened to him his uh the woman who he wanted to marry um that falling through and then his brother dying and then friends dying and the situations happening um between the united states government and the traditional cultures being wiped out and the buffalo being wiped out um you could say that he cultivated this fierce fierce bravery and courage to go and do the most dangerous and you could say risky acts but was able to pull them off and so he became legendary in that regard and in the process of doing that at a young age he went from being called light-haired to being called crazy horse which is a name he took from his father his father gave him that name and his father actually uh, took on the name worm <laughs> and it's funny but as they were talking in the podcast they were saying what a profound uh reflection of the humility of of his father of of which is a value esteemed in the culture of humility and humility and generosity and sacrifice being the values and the principles and the ethos of warriors in the Lakota culture. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. I mean, it's kind of a funny statement. It's a beautiful thing that the guy decided to call himself Worm. <laughs> but it is in a lot of ways because you, how many of us, after tremendous success and uh, achieving a certain level of status and recognition for our bravery or not even that maybe just for our skill or our craftsmanship or just being a good person amongst a circle of people or like a reputable person would choose to call ourselves worm if that's that just shows you kind of like where that guy was at and not from a place of wanting to degrade himself but choosing to go as low to the earth as possible. And that immediately just clicks me back to the Tao Tai Ching where it says, 
become like water. Water always flows to the lowest place. And the teaching of that being that there's some kind of serenity and connection and power because the Tao Te Ching translates to literally the way and its power. So there's a power and moving to the lowest place and being connected to that humility. So that's kind of what I'm taking away from the teaching of listening to that is just humility and the cultivation and practice of that, which obviously, at least at first, no one's going to enjoy. And I'm definitely not going to sit here and say I'm a good reflection of humility. God bless me. But to reflect on that as a quality to embrace on the war path to higher consciousness but also one that was embraced on the war path in a very literal sense i mean he was going out killing people scalping them you know that's intense that's like hardcore like whoa that's scary (laughs) but uh that premise is something that such a powerful thing to keep meditating on how can i make myself lower to the ground and like i said uh on the first podcast of this series of the bhagavad gita and the mentality of being a warrior i taught the class in sixth grade to peers i definitely wasn't more educated than any of my sixth grade classmates and in the same respect as i share this stuff here on this podcast i am constantly doing so from the perspective of someone that is a student and enjoys being a student and i always like to share that especially when i talk in front of groups of people about this kind of stuff uh because it's a constant reminder that it's it's better to call yourself worm than great flying eagle or something (laughs) something like that you know we get the point that the practice of of reminding yourself and others that okay i am just a student and that's why i said that in the beginning of this podcast i was like this is reminds me of when i was teaching people in sixth grade as a sixth grader not because i'm you know highly educated but just because to explain things is the best way to learn them and as I said, that, that class that I taught that day was the one that stuck with me more so than anything else in sixth grade. As I said, also, aside from September 11th, which happened that year in 2001, and I was in New Jersey at the time. Uh, I'm not going to get into that right now, but just something, you know, those were the two things I remember. So, let us continue with the... Bhagavad Gita. We left off with Krishna telling Arjuna that it is better to do your own duty badly than to do perfectly another's. You are safe from harm when you do what you should be doing. That statement I have underlined and starred, and I think it's one of the most profound things that I've heard in the Bhagavad Gita, Uh, especially living in community. We are all constantly pressured to move in a certain direction everyone wants you to do this or that or so on and so forth and there's moments where you go i'm gonna try to do everything and sometimes you're even able to do everything and it's amazing and then there's a moment where you feel completely burnt out from it and you're asking yourself this first of all why am i doing this 
is this just a byproduct of like some sort of codependent people pleasing pattern these are questions i've had to ask myself or and then you wonder it well okay no i'm doing it because it's service but then you ask yourself is this sustainable and then there's the teaching of well the idea is actually to burn out nirvana means technically in the pali language to extinguish to burn out for the passions for you to come into a a sattvic state as the Bhagavad Gita says where you are like the man who no longer needs to act and you can just sit there and say it is complete but I like what's said here because this is very practical advice and I found that this is helpful because it's like everyone in the community wants you to do something but if you simply choose to do your duty even if you don't do it in the best way, but you are focusing one point in this on that, then you are safe from harm. And you can reword that a number of ways that you know, you're in alignment with the universe. So I think that's the meditation that I just want to reemphasize that statement because I have it starred and underlined. And I think it's important that we are constantly focusing on what is it that I have to be doing in the context of this madness. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think of the Bhagavad Gita, I think of Lord of the Rings and those battle scenes where they have you know, orcs and everyone's fighting and it's just madness. And it's like, how does the one guy in there deal with it all? He just focuses on the one person that he's battling, the one demon in front of him. That's the job. We're not worried about the 10,000 more that are coming. <laughs> you know, you can only do one thing at a time. Focus on that. Arjuna replies, what is it that drives a man to an evil action, Krishna, even against his will as if some force made him do it? Krishna replies, that force is desire. It is anger arising from the guna called rajas. Deadly and all-devouring, that is the enemy here. As a fire is obscured by smoke, as a mirror is covered by dust, as a fetus is wrapped in its membrane, so wisdom is obscured by desire. Wisdom is destroyed, Arjuna, by the constant enemy of the wise, which, flaring up as desire, blazes with insatiable flames. Desire dwells in the senses, the mind, and the understanding. In all these, it obscures wisdom and perplexes the embodied self. Therefore, you must first control your senses, Arjuna, then destroy this evil that prevents you from ever knowing the truth. Men say that the senses are strong, but the mind is stronger than the senses. The understanding is stronger than the mind, and the strongest is the self. Knowing the self, sustaining the self by the self, Arjuna, kill the difficult-to-conquer enemy called desire. The part that stands out to me here, but the mind is stronger than the senses. That is a motto we cannot emphasize enough. And if whatever struggle we go through whatever obstacle there is the capacity to overcome it exists and i feel someone like you know wim hof or david goggins is an example with hof literally climbing up mount everest wearing nothing but shorts <laughs> did not get to the top but nonetheless 
that is a reflection that whatever obstacle that any one of us is dealing with that's beating us down, there is definitely a way through it. And for the record, how, how did Wim Hof get to the place inside of himself where he said he could do that? Uh, yoga. He deeply studied Sanskrit, pranayama, asana, service to others. I mean, this is... Yoga can allow you to climb Mount Everest in shorts. If yoga can allow you to climb Mount Everest in shorts, literally, then you know that whatever obstacle you are dealing with through the direct control of your senses, you can find a way out of it. And this is, once again, just to come back to it, why I appreciate the teachings of the Navy SEALs because the entire training is that. It's not done necessarily in a yogic fashion but there's maybe a moment where you're on the path and you're finding yourself with a level of pain that will not go away and to come back to what i was talking about on the first podcast of the series victor frankel the Jewish psychoanalyst who went to Auschwitz was talking about how human suffering, right? He said it's very much like gas, where even if it's a tiny little bit of gas or if it's a lot of gas, it fills up whatever space that it's in and fully occupies it. So the teaching there is that in his experience, even a little bit of something that doesn't seem like a big deal can turn into an unbearable weight. In, in the same way that something enormous can. And I think that's a, a very important thing to reflect upon because it's important not to compare our suffering to others. It's important to understand everyone's fighting a hard battle. Plato said a great quote that I love it says be kind because everyone is fighting a hard battle inside be kind and this premise of dealing with our suffering it, it seems to me in a lot of ways there's two routes we can either say i'm a victim of this i can't do it it's too much or we can embrace the path of the warrior and say okay the mind is stronger than the senses i'm moving in that direction irrespective of what is in my path i am driven beyond capacity of what anyone understands and that's why i love listening to david goggins as much profanity as he uses and as much of an attitude as he has at certain moments he speaks about this mentality of the mind being stronger than the senses. And his rule after running 100 miles in 24 hours with zero training and breaking both of his feet at mile 70 and urinating blood and feeling like he's about to die and then getting up and running another 30 miles, his premise is that he learned that when you're totally broken and you feel completely exhausted, you, that's when you know there's another 40% left in the tank. And the willpower, I've, I've heard from my teacher and I feel as a, from many teachers, is an extremely important component 
on the spiritual path, right? The cultivation of the willpower. And what I like about neuroscience, it teaches us that it is very much a muscle that can be trained. Let's continue on. Krishna says, as we get into chapter four, the yoga of wisdom, I taught this imperishable doctrine to Viva Svat, God of the sun, more than a hundred billion years ago. Viva Svat told it to Manu, father of humans, Manu to king Ikshavaku, transmitted from one generation to the next. It was known for eons. To all the primeval wise men, the seers, and philosopher kings, but over the dwindling ages, the doctrine has been lost, Arjuna. This is the ancient doctrine that I've taught you today. Since you are my devotee and friend, this is the innermost doctrine. So there's one word that he uses here, philosopher kings. I first heard this as a discussion from Plato, a.k.a. out of the mouth of Socrates, as Plato never speaks directly, only through Socrates. And the premise of an enlightened society in Plato's perspective is that you have philosopher kings guiding the society and the and the idea is that these are people of true wisdom who have come into a state of non-attachment equanimity renunciation and so they're able to appropriately guide the society in the right direction and obviously when you have philosopher kings you probably go in a different direction than when you have donald trump and sarah palin guiding you carrying on Arjuna says, but you were born countless eons later than the God of the sun. How then is it possible that you taught this doctrine to him? The blessed Lord said, many times I have been born and many times you have also. All these lives I remember, you recall only this one. Although I am unborn, deathless, the infinite Lord of all beings through my own wondrous power, I come into finite form. Whenever righteousness falters and chaos threatens to prevail, I take on a human body and manifest myself on earth. In order to protect the good, to destroy the doers of evil, to ensure the triumph of righteousness in every age I am born. Whoever knows profoundly my divine presence on earth is not reborn when he leaves the body but comes to me. Remember, I... As uh, we read this, Krishna, once again, is this metaphor for our higher consciousness that we are trying to connect with and merge. Yoga translating to union, to yoke, union with higher consciousness. Krishna continues, released from greed, fear, anger, absorbed in me and made pure by the practice of wisdom, many have attained my own state of being. However men try to reach me, I return their love with my love. Whatever path they may travel, it leads to me in the end. Wishing success in their actions, men's sacrifice to the gods for ritual can bring success quickly in the world of men. I founded the forecast system with the gunas appropriate to each. Although I did this, know that I am the eternal non-doer. Action cannot defile me since I am indifferent to results. All those who understand this will not be bound by their actions. This is how actions were done by the ancient seekers of freedom. Follow their example. 
act surrendering the fruits of actions. What are action and inaction? This matter confuses even wise men. So I will teach you and free you from any harm. This reminds me of the Tao Tai Ching, just to draw on a parallel. The master does all but leaves nothing, does nothing but leaves nothing undone. The master does nothing but leaves nothing undone. Krishna continues, you must realize what action is, what wrong action and inaction are as well. The true nature of action is profound and difficult to fathom. He who can see inaction in the midst of action and action in the midst of inaction is wise and can act in the spirit of yoga. Once again, as I say, he, he who does all... <laughs> He does nothing, but nothing is left undone. I keep forgetting the actual phrase. With no desire for success, no anxiety about failure, indifferent to results, he burns up his actions in the fire of wisdom. Surrendering all thoughts of outcome, unperturbed, self-reliant, he does nothing at all, even when fully engaged in actions. There is nothing that he expects, nothing that he fears, serene free from possessions untainted acting with the body of alone i feel this is very much a teaching to drive us as deeply into the present moment and the depth of the present moment as possible we are just here and now what is happening here and now do not be concerned with where it is going do not be afraid with where it is going do not get caught up in the expectation of where we're going. Just be here now. Krishna says, Content with whatever happens, unattached to pleasure or pain, success or failure, he acts and is never bound by his action. In the Tao Tai Ching, it says, What difference between success and failure? Krishna says, when a man has let go of attachments, when his mind is rooted in wisdom, everything he does is worship, and all his actions melt away. God is the offering, God is the offered, poured out by God. God is attained by all those who see God in every action. Some men of yoga pray to the gods and make this their worship. Some offer worship by worship, itself in the fire of God. Others offer their senses in the fire of self-abnegation. Others offer the senses objects in the fire of the senses. Others offer all actions of the sense and of the breath in the fire kindled by wisdom of the yoga of self-restraint. Some offer wealth, austerities, their practice of yoga. Others, ascetics, offer their studies of the scripture and wisdom itself. Others, intent on control of their vital forces, offer their in-breath into their out-breath, or their out-breath into their in-breath. Others, while fasting, offer their in-breath into their in-breath. All these understand worship. By worship, they are cleansed of sin. Remember, the translation of sin accurately is, means to miss the mark. So through our practices, we become like an archer which I believe is what Arjuna is, is an archer. And we can refine our connection 
to spirit, to God, to Krishna, to consciousness, to wisdom, to appropriately hit our target. And there are many methods. As Krishna said prior, all paths lead to me. There's, and he's giving a list of things that work. Partaking of the essence of worship, forever they are freed of themselves. But non-worshippers cannot be happy in this world or any other. Thus, many forms of worship may lead to freedom, Arjuna. All of these are born of action. When you know this, you will be free. Better than any ritual is the worship achieved through wisdom. Wisdom is the final goal of every action, Arjuna. Find a wise teacher, honor him, ask him questions, serve him. Someone who has seen the truth will guide you on the path to wisdom. When you realize it, you will never fall back into delusion. Knowing it, you see all beings in yourself and yourself in me. I think that's just a beautiful line right there. Knowing it, you see all beings in yourself and yourself in me. Even if you were the most evil of evildoers, Arjuna, wisdom is the boat that would carry you across the sea of all sin. And this reminds me of uh, the story of Milarepa, the Tibetan yogi. I actually had the opportunity, I was hiking in Annapurna to the top of Annapurna. It's like a 17,000 foot peak in Nepal. And I got to go climb up uh, into one of Milarepa's caves, about 10,000 feet up. And really powerful, beautiful statue up there. And just get to sit up there. This is apparently where Milarepa used to sit. And Milarepa, I always appreciated deeply because he actually was a murderer. <laughs> he used yogic black magic to kill people. From what I understand, his aunt was the one who told him to go and kill people, and he just was kind of listening to her. I haven't studied it very deeply. He's very famous. You can look it up and give me the specific detail, but he killed several people using black magic, is my understanding, from the cities of yoga, the powers that come through the practices of self-restraint on the senses and higher perception capacity to, I think, conjure a hailstorm. And he killed several people with it. But then he turns his life around and moves towards the path of wisdom and forgiveness and peace and compassion. And he achieves full illumination. And so the, I always love the teaching of Milarepa because no matter what I do, I haven't killed anyone. And even if some insane reason that happened, well, I didn't kill a bunch of people. <laughs> And, you know, at the same time, you can come no matter where you have strayed in your path. You can come back to this equanimity, this wisdom, this peace, this harmony, this connection. And I think that's a lot of ways the teaching of Milarepa is understanding that no matter what you do, you can redeem yourself. And I remember Eckhart Tolle was talking about how this state of presence and connection to the present moment is accessible by anyone and everyone and oftentimes he says people who are in extreme intense situations perhaps someone about to be executed i believe he was talking about this can come into a state of such profound peace and release 
and freedom internally speaking where they are just so enmeshed in the present moment that even their death and whatever happened in the past whatever's to come in the future is totally irrelevant to the beauty and the surrender that they find in the present moment and there is a jesuit priest who was in a soviet gulag i've talked about this guy before not much but a little bit i think walter shizak and he said something after 27 years in a soviet gulag russian concentration camp he said he came into such a state of surrender and inner freedom and grace of god that it didn't matter what was happening in the outside world and this is what i was talking about that uh victor frankel was referring to in auschwitz was that in this state of extreme you realize that true freedom had to do with your attitude and this is what krishna is saying here if you were the most evil of evildoers arjuna wisdom is the boat that would carry you across the sea of all sins so that's your redemption is your connection to this state of wisdom krishna continues just as firewood is turned to ashes in the flames of a fire all actions are turned to ashes in wisdom's refining flames nothing in the world can purify as powerfully as wisdom practiced in yoga you will find this wisdom within yourself however he also recommends a few paragraphs earlier find a wise teacher so you will find this wisdom within yourself he says here but also says find a wise teacher uh -huh. so there's a saying they say when the student the when the teacher the teaching and the taught all become one then we understand krishna says resolute restraining his senses the man of faith becomes wise once he attains true wisdom he soon attains perfect peace ignorant men without faith are easily mirrored in doubt they can never be truly happy in this world or the world beyond faith i think i really i really love the word faith in <laughs> i remember this very vividly i went to go see mad max in 2015 in the springtime right around this time of year and i remember we had a gathering uh with our teacher and he gave a teaching where he says abandon hope that was the teaching that he gave and i remember i was like oh that's what they said in mad max that was the that was the teaching where they were running away from the people who were chasing them and they get to the desert and they realize there's no salvation and they have to turn around and fight and he says you know abandon hope and while that might sound a little okay abandon hope wasn't that kind of Barack obama's campaign slogan we're trying to abandon hope okay what what but this is very much teaching of pema children tibetan tradition Jognam Trungpa, this idea that we abandon hope, but we come back to the heart. We come back to surrender. We come back to faith. So I look at it like, forget your hope, but have some faith. Forget your hope, but have some faith. Because faith is understanding that the situation is hopeless. That's what Pema Chodron, Chognam Trungpa, and the Tibetans talk about it is hopeless. But that 
that suffering or chaos will ever stop on a certain level, right? Because this is what the Tao Tai Ching says, that you think the world can be improved. The world cannot be improved. It is perfect just the way it is. It's perfect just the way it is, which is simultaneously an affirmation that it's totally messed up, but this is how it's supposed to be. And we can have faith in that and acceptance of it and find peace within that. So faith is understanding that our desires and this idea of salvation and heaven above, as Bob Marley says, is not going to come, but rather that we can have faith that there is a process of transmutation. And like he says, Krishna up here, just as firewood is turned to ashes in the flames of a fire, all actions are turned to ashes and wisdoms refining flames. There's a deep process of transmutation occurring in life with our actions and our understanding and our consciousness, and we can have faith in that. He continues, a man is not bound by action who renounces action through yoga, who concentrates on the self and whose doubt is cut off by wisdom. Therefore, with the sword of wisdom, cut off this doubt in your heart. Follow the path of selfless action. Stand up, Arjuna. Selfless action. Cut off the doubt in your heart. Chapter 5, the Yoga of Renunciation. Arjuna said, You have praised both renunciation and the yoga of action, Krishna. Tell me now, of these two, which is the better path? The Blessed Lord said, Renunciation and yoga both lead to the ultimate good. But of the two paths, Arjuna, yoga is the more direct. The true renunciate neither desires things nor avoids them. Indifferent to pleasure and pain, he is easily freed from all bondage. Fools say that knowledge and yoga are separate, but the wise do not. When you practice one of them deeply, you gain the rewards of both. The state reached by true knowledge is reached by yoga as well. Both paths lead to the self, both lead to selfless action. It is hard to renounce all action without engaging in action. The sage, wholehearted in the yoga of action, soon attains freedom. Wholehearted, purified, mastering body and mind, his self becomes the self of all beings. He is sustained by anything he does. The man who has seen the truth thinks, I am not the doer at all times. When he sees, hears, touches, when he smells, eats, walks, sleeps, breathes. When he defecates, talks, or takes hold, when he opens his eyes or shuts them, at all times he thinks this is merely sense objects acting on the senses. Offering his actions to God, he is free of all action. Sin rolls off of him as drops of water roll off a lotus leaf. Surrendering attachment, the sage performs all actions with his body, his mind, and his understanding only to make himself pure. The resolute in yoga surrender results and gain perfect peace. The irresolutes attached to results are bound by everything they do. Calmly renouncing all actions, the embodied self dwells at ease as the lord of the nine-gated city, not acting, not causing action. 
It does not create the means of action or the action itself or the union of resultant action. All these arise from nature. Nor does it partake of anyone's virtuous or evil actions when knowledge of the self is obscured. By ignorance, men act badly. But when ignorance is completely destroyed, the light of wisdom shines like the midday sun and illumines what is supreme. Contemplating that, inspired and rooted and absorbed in that, men reach the state of true freedom from which there is no rebirth. Men, Wise men regard all beings as equal. A learned priest, a cow, an elephant, a rat, or a filthy rat-eating outcast. Freed from the endless cycle of birth and death, they can act impartially towards all beings, since to them all beings are the same. So this can be a good barometer on our, our path of understanding our progress, which on a certain level to understand progress on this path is clearly misunderstanding it altogether but nonetheless it seems like on one level of consciousness understanding our progress on the path is a necessary stage of the path and eventually that leads to a state where that no longer becomes even relevant but that there is a quite a significant part of the time where we do desire and desire is not the right word we do express a curiosity to understand our progress and we're talking about being free from desires and so you know as i've meditated about this like there are desires that are beneficial in life the desire to help others the desire to practice yoga and so the enemy in a certain sense isn't desire i think a better way maybe to read that is craving or having expectations or entitlement or obsessions or fixations curiosity is very healthy goal setting is obviously great i mean you set a goal to help someone and then you do it that's wonderful so i think we don't want to necessarily uh deviate from just the natural human experience of being alive with what is humanistically relevant helping others connecting with people uh, doing something nice for your neighbor these are very practical things that are also in essence mystically aligned with these teachings of becoming free from desire because we're saying here that yoga is better than renunciation the goal is not to uh, remove ourselves from society but actually to more deeply engage with it it's just that the removal from, from society is more of an inner process and i would from my own experience suggest that as that becomes a more deeply legitimate practice there does oftentimes create a giant shift that's felt in the external world uh Mahatma Gandhi is a good example of that. But at the same time, Mahatma Gandhi, not in contrary to that, but Mahatma Gandhi deeply, deeply engaged with society, so much so that he was pivotal in transforming the entire globe and from and continues to do so through the teachings which we're sharing at this moment. And so understanding 
renunciation the true renunciate neither desires things nor avoids them that's true renunciation is to is the renunciation of our aversion and our craving is to remain in a place of inner equanimity the practice of equanimity is renunciation wholeheartedly engaging in actions soon attains freedom right wholeheartedly engaging in what's happening with society with others with participation in the world and joseph campbell beautiful quote is saying that the goal is joyful participation in the world of sorrows joyfully participating indifferent to the suffering not in indifferent can sound cold-hearted because it's not about becoming cold-hearted but having an a a tolerance and an equanimity and acceptance of the suffering and being able to consciously through your will and understanding of wisdom as expressed here bring forth joyful loving compassion acceptance forgiveness and peace and equanimity to the world of sorrow because to live in duality is inherently sorrowful because there's loss there's death whenever there's this imposition of time whatever comes forth has to leave and i there's another quote that i came across from joseph campbell attributed to our the poet who gave the name of the the doors of perception to aldous huxley which became the name for the band the doors in the 1800s i cannot remember his name you can look it up if you're curious to know he has a couple of very profound statements but he says eternity is in love with the forms of time eternity is in love with the forms of time so joyful participation in the world of sorrow is a path of action to lead us through the doorway into eternity from time to eternity and it's interesting though right because we're talking about that being not to sacrifice your humanistic earthly experience because you're now in eternity which is what happens to a lot of people i've definitely been i've walked that line i'll put it that way at certain moments in my life but that happens to a lot of people you know we call those burnouts right and it's interesting too because i i was in india nepal and bhutan for a year and you have uh the sadhus who are the hindu monks sadhu literally translates to monk and a lot of the sadhus from what i understood from what i was taught there from people who you know been there in the culture since the 80s uh is that a lot of them are genuine seekers but a lot of them are also complete stoner dropouts people that don't want to work want to just get high and walk around naked and i'm not judging that maybe the my professor was who was telling me when i was there i was actually inspired to get dreadlocks after <laughs> going there but uh and spending time with the sadhus at shivaratri in uh in Nepal at Pashupatina the um the sacred temple to Shiva where the sadhus descend upon on the night of Shiva 
it's a temple that's featured in um doctor strange uh so i i always appreciated the freakiness of the sadhus for the record but it's interesting because a lot of them are kind of burnt out and but this is also you know differentiation between different paths right because you have the the sadhus and you know you can look at the jain tradition right as the most extreme example of this this is also coming joseph campbell talking about this the jain example the jain tradition coming out of india very similar to buddhism and hinduism renunciation asceticism meditation trying to find escape from death and rebirth and coming to a state of enlightenment they're so extreme in their path of non-violence that they would be totally naked and they brush every step in front of them with a uh, like a banana leaf to make sure they don't step on any insects so they do no harm because they they feel in a lot of ways that this life is essentially a mistake from which you must escape from that might be a misinterpretation but that's kind of how i understand it they feel that there's something wrong with the violence of the world of the conflict between duality and that you must escape from it and so that's interesting because that's in a lot of ways stark contrast to let's say the native american tradition which is very much about joyful participation in the world of sorrows it's be a warrior like crazy horses going out and killing people and scalping them and this is mystically and humanistically supported mythologically speaking right so this person is being there's a support system through the mythos and the ethos of the culture that provides context for why that's happening why violence is in the world in the bhagavad gita in a lot of ways right they're saying go out go forth arjuna and fight you are making a grave error of cowardice if you choose not to fight because of your grieving for the the livid uh you're grieving for the uh living and the dead that is a grave error and misperception so there is kind of an interesting contrast of traditions here in their understanding of what renunciation means and participation and escape and i would like to study the jain tradition more i have not done enough i'd be curious to hear more about it and if that interpretation i provided which is not something i derived on my own uh that comes a lot from joseph campbell but then also a little bit of my time in india going to jain temples and and that kind of thing um and my experience being around native american elders as well so much to learn krishna continues wise men they do not rejoice in good fortune they do not lament at bad fortune lucid with minds unshaken they remain with what is real a man unattached to sensations who finds fulfillment in the self whose mind has become pure freedom attains an imperishable joy pleasure from external objects are wombs of suffering arjuna they have their beginnings and their ends no wise man seeks joy among them pleasure from external objects are wombs of suffering intense statement especially if you are materialistically oriented the man of yoga who is able to overcome here on earth the turmoil of desire and anger that man is truly happy he who finds peace and joy and radiance within himself that man becomes one with god and vanishes into god's bliss 
The wise man cleansed of his sins, who has cut off all separation, who delights in the welfare of all beings, vanishes into God's bliss. He who controls his mind and has cut off desire and anger realizes the self. He knows that God's bliss is nearer than near. Closing his eyes, his vision focused between the eyebrows, making the in-breath and the out-breath equal as they pass through his nostrils. He controls his senses and his mind, intent upon liberation. When desire, fear, and anger have left him, that man is forever free. Knowing me as the enjoyer of all worship, the lord of all worlds, the dearest friend of all beings, that man gains perfect peace. The Yoga of Meditation, Chapter 6. The Blessed Lord says, He who performs his duty with no concerns for results is the true man of yoga, not he who refrains from action. Okay, so the true man of yoga is someone who participates in the world, according to Krishna, not someone who sits alone in the cave or just says, I'm hiding from what's happening. It's a person that puts himself in the front line. Know that right action itself is renunciation, Arjuna. In the yoga of action, you will renounce your own selfish will. For the man who wishes to mature, the yoga of action is the path. For the man already mature, serenity is the path. When a man be has become unattached to his sense objects or to actions, renouncing his own selfish will, then he is mature in yoga. He should lift up the self by the self and not sink into the selfish for the self is the only friend of the self and its only foe. The self is a friend for him who masters himself by the self. But for him who is not self-mastered, the self is the cruelest foe. I am interpreting this kind of like, what does Don Corleone say in The Godfather? I think it is, you know, or... What a, the character in the mob movie, you know, the, the godfather helps those who help themselves kind of thing. But this is also the premise, right? Rumi says that uh, what I'm seeking is also seeking me. This idea that there, if there is a true unity and that the, the division is an illusion, then this process of us coming together is going to be amplified by your efforts. But if you are lazy and tamasic, then expect things to get very difficult. When a man has mastered himself, he is perfectly at ease in cold, in heat, in pleasure, or pain, in honor, or in disgrace. <laughs> I like at perfectly at ease in the cold. Yes. So, the cold plunge. Anyways, the mature man, fulfilled in wisdom, resolute, looks with equal detachment at a lump of dirt, a rock, or a piece of gold. I think that's beautiful. That connects, I think, in a lot of ways to the, the Native American perspective where they would really, as a culture with the mythology, strive to look at the unity of the earth of the sky, of the animals, of the plants. <laughs> when the <laughs> if there's that film, 
about the Western doctor who goes down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca or some kind of similar thing with the shaman down there in the Amazon. And I think there's some moment where he or somebody else tries to give the shaman money and he goes, what good is money? Only ants can eat that. <laughs> this premise of, of like, what, what are we valuing? You know, what is the culture of valuing? And we can look at too, I'm keep giving, I'm keep coming back to Joseph Campbell here. I don't know why, but it's happening a lot unintentionally. So he talked about, you want to know where a culture, a culture's values lie? Look at the tallest building in their city. Traditionally, historically, it's a church. Nowadays in New York City, it's economic financial structures. This is where the meditation and the consciousness of the city is highly, most highly directed. And obviously these are not, like, this is not a yogic culture, but if you can look at the Lakota, for instance, it's, it is a, a yogic culture, although they're not doing asana perhaps, but it is a yogic culture because they're able, they're looking at, as the Lakota say, aho metakliyas and all of my relations, acknowledging the interconnected web of life. And saying here, the mature man fulfilled in wisdom resolute looks with equal detachment at a lump of dirt, a rock, or a piece of pure gold. And that might sound on a certain level with the language and the interpretation of what he uses, the word detachment, as negative or apathetic. But detach, if when you, the few times in my life, let's say, when I've been in a state of, of really well-established equanimity, maybe the 10th day of Vipassana or something like that. And you look out at the world, you, that detachment is very beautiful. It's, it's flowing. It's very cathartic. It's, it has a lot of understanding and appreciation to it. It's, it's, there's, in my experience, it's very rich experience. It's not like, Oh, look at that lump of dirt and that piece of gold. It's not, it's not like, uh, a bitterness or a resentment it's quite the opposite of like wow look at the sunrise it's incredible but you're not craving anything you're not like oh i gotta get the sun <laughs> or anything insane like that or oh the sun it's, it's wow it's a state of awe i think so awe can move us forward he looks impartially on all those who love him or hate him, his kingsmen, his enemies, his friends, the good, and also the wicked. Now that right there is a very powerful teaching about, practically speaking, how to relate to people, especially in community. Those who hate you, those who love you, your friends, your enemies, the good and the evil. There's something in the Tao Te Ching I can't recall. They're saying along the lines of both the saint and the sinner are welcome here. Something like that. And so I believe he says the, the actual phrase is, what is, a good, what is a good man but a... Oh my goodness, I cannot remember this at all. Something along the lines of... I'm going to try one more time here. I'm not going to edit this out because I think it's entertaining. What is a bad man but a good man's teacher? And what is a bad man but a, I can't remember. But you can feel free to look it up. And that's this is a same reflection of are we approaching everybody from this state of equality 
and impartialness. And this is a very difficult practice, and I think this is the practice of why you live in community, is so that you're confronted with people who you like, people who you don't like, people who have betrayed you very deeply, people who maybe you have betrayed very deeply. And then we all have to look with forgiveness, impartiality, compassion and understanding, and continue to relate and work together and move in the direction of something. And also this is in, in many ways, I think what it, the intention is of getting married is that that person can go from being your best friend to your worst enemy and you can continue the relationship. Obviously, divorce is kind of a funny concept if you really got spiritually married to the person. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever get divorced. It's just talking about the premise of, let's say, you're, you know, in India, there's something like 2% divorce rate because of the family social structure around the practice of marriage. And the idea is it holds it together. And I think, you know, it, there's something about that. When you're committed in that way to holding it together, you go through every possible configuration of a relationship with a single person. And the illumination there is, okay, wow. They are not the problem. The enemy is not out there. Anyone and everyone can become your greatest support and your greatest curse. Fascinating practice. The man of yoga should practice concentration alone, mastering mind and body free of possessions and desires. So interesting, he says right there, free of possessions. I assume he's talking about material possessions. Sitting down, having chosen a spot that is neither too high nor too low, that is clean and covered with the grass mat, a deerskin, and a cloth. Very specific. <laughs> he should concentrate with his whole mind on a single object. If he practices in this way, his mind will soon become pure. With torso and head held straight, with posture steady and unmoving, gazing at the tip of his nose, not letting his eyes look elsewhere, he should sit there calm, fearless, firm in his vow to be chaste, his whole mind controlled, directed, focused, absorbed in me. Constantly mastering his mind, the man of yoga grows peaceful, attains supreme liberation, and vanishes into my bliss. He who eats too much food or too little, who is always drowsy or restless, will never succeed in the yoga of meditation. For the man who is moderate in food and pleasure, moderate in action, moderate in sleep and waking, yoga destroys all sorrow. And to cut in here, I think it's an interesting question because, right, you have, this is the, the premise of Siddhartha, the Buddha, uh, of going to the extremes, eating one grain of rice a day to the point where he's so emaciated that people think that he's a corpse. And then prior to that, living as a prince, having sex with as many women as he wants, eating as much as he wants, drinking alcohol, being totally indulgent in senses. Then deciding to come to the middle way, not, you know, a little bit of rice here and there, eat a little bit, of drink a little bit of water, and get rest, this kind of thing. So I think the interesting thing that I'm, I'm trying to derive from that is we live in a culture right now that is in totally 
holy god out of balance and even though you might be listening to this and know you do your practices and you eat the right food and so on and so forth we can't help but be affected by it if we have totally deviated from the culture norm norm mainstream but the reality is like you still have we're up brought up in that culture and it's not just the culture in the United States because this is a globalized world that we live in these days. There's very few people that live in traditional cultures that have been untouched by the modern world or modern values and so on and so forth. And I think it's interesting because when they talk about like moderation, what might be moderate from the eyes of the person who wrote the Bhagavad Gita or the people that wrote the Bhagavad Gita or from what Krishna is trying to say could be pretty extreme considering how extreme in the opposite direction our culture has gone that being said siddhartha is a good example right because he was pretty extreme probably relatable to the way a lot of people in this culture live i mean i saw a thing that something about the heaviest person in the world was something like 1400 pounds i mean this like that's extreme like holy god how, you know that's wow <laughs> extreme but so what might be extreme or rather what might be moderate for the person writing in the Bhagavad Gita might actually be fairly extreme for those of us living in this current culture and I think the way to find the middle ground though is of course is to moderately change your position don't you change your position extreme there is a residual backlash Ram Das would talk about where it's like you went too far in the other in the right way and now all of a sudden uh you you fasted for two weeks and all of a sudden you find yourself gorging on ice cream right afterwards and there's a lot of times that things like this happen to people i've been in similar positions of things like this where after abstaining very intensely uh i did a 10-day fast one time and then I soon found myself eating a bunch of Italian food way too soon afterwards. <laughs> I was in Italy, though, so it was kind of a... But when I say Italian food, you know what I mean. I was eating like a lot of bread, a lot of oil, a lot of pizza, a lot of cheese. I couldn't help it. So there's this idea of understanding moderation and that we have to reckon with the fact that if we're living extremely, which I think all of us have some aspect of the culture imprinted on our psyche and our behavioral patterns just from living in it from whatever time period we did, even if we have removed ourselves from it, we may come to terms that we might need to radically shift ourselves actually to find balance and a moderate path. Yet I would encourage people to find that moderate, which I'm saying is actually extreme, given where we are right now but to do it in a very moderate way because as krishna said prior um, no amount of effort on this path is wasted and there's no rush this is an eternal process with the mind grown clear and peaceful freed from selfish desires absorbed in the self alone he is called a true man of yoga a lamp sheltered from the wind which does not flicker. To this is compared the true man of yoga whose mind has vanished in the self. 
When his mind has become serene by the practice of meditation, he sees the self through the self and rests in the self rejoicing. He knows the infinite joy that is reached beyond reached by the understanding beyond the senses steadfast. He does not fall back from the truth. Attaining this state, he knows that there is no higher attainment. He is rooted there, unshaken even by the deepest sorrow. This is true yoga, the unbinding of the bonds of sorrow. Practice this yoga with determination and with a courageous heart. Abandoning all desires, born of his own selfish will, a man should learn to restrain his unruly senses with his mind. Gradually, he becomes calm and controls his understanding. Focusing on the self, he should think of nothing at all. If you can sit down and meditate and focus on God and think of nothing at all. Wow. It, and I'm, I'm saying that kind of facetiously because if you study meditation and practice it, it's extremely... The, you know, for instance, I, heard, I think I saw a quote by either Muji or Adi Ashanti recently. I think it was Muji. And he said something like, trying to stop the mind is like putting up a kite uh, in the wind. And the kite being your mind and the wind being the thought. Something like that. The point being that it's utterly impossible. And that the premise is not to stop it, but to become a witness of it. And... Through the witness, there's spaciousness that occurs where, well, spaciousness occurs. Maybe this is what the author is trying to convey to us. Uh, I don't know. I have not been able to even in deep meditation retreats and things. But, you know, the Tibetan, the Tibetans, they do sometimes retreats that last three years and they're in meditation the entire time and they actually put themselves in a little box that's they can't even stand up or stretch their legs out you know that's very intense i don't know what would happen to someone if they chose to do that but that being said the bhagavad gita is emphasizing action not sitting in a cave although someone like dilgo kinsey rinpoche who i talked about in this podcast who was teacher of the dalai lama who i've highly 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 revere and is highly revered by virtually everybody who knows of him uh did live in a cave for 12 years as a training but he also had a family he had two daughters and it was interesting because they did not even realize that he was their father until much later in life because he was constantly on retreat so just things to reflect about in the in the spirit of we're talking about renunciation and challenging oneself and trying to find this state within ourselves. And, you know, there's this quote in the Quran that says that, did you think you could enter the Garden of Eden without going through the trials and tribulations of those who crossed before you? You fool. Well, that part, you fool, like I add on, but you get the premise is that, like, there's a difficulty and a struggle. And, you know, this is why the Bhagavad Gita says it's a war. It's not easy. That guy sat in a cave for 12 years in the Himalayas doing breath work to keep himself warm, which I'm not making up. That was actually how Dilgo Kinsei Rinpoche kept himself warm was by doing uh, Tibetan breath work. I can't remember the type that it's called. 
uh, to keep himself impervious to the elements. That's a war right there. While having two daughters. Then having the Chinese invade Tibet. Losing the culture. Having to move to India. Krishna continues however often the restless mind may break loose and wander he should rein it in and constantly bring it back to the self when his mind becomes clear and peaceful he enters absolute joy his passions are calmed forever he is utterly absorbed in god mastering mind and body purified from all sin he easily gains true freedom and finds an infinite joy Mature in yoga, impartial everywhere that he looks, he sees himself in all beings and all beings in himself. The man who sees me in everything and everything within me will not be lost to me, nor will I ever be lost to him. He who is rooted in oneness realizes that I am in every being. Wherever he goes, he remains in me. When he sees all beings as equal, in suffering or in joy, because they are like himself, that man has grown perfect in yoga. You have taught the essence of yoga is equanimity, Krishna. This is Arjuna's reply. The essence of yoga is equanimity. Arjuna continues, but since the mind is so restless, how can that be achieved? Aha, this is what I was just asking. Wonderful. I like that the book follows up with that. I'm like, I can't, the love of God, figure that one out. Arjuna says, the mind is restless, unsteady, turbulent, wild, stubborn, truly. It seems to me as hard to master as the wind. That's beautiful, right? I just said that. I'm... <laughs> there we go. Okay, synchronicity here. <laughs> That's funny. The blessed Lord said, you are right, Arjuna. The mind is restless and hard to master, but by constant practice and detachment, it can be mastered in the end. Yoga is indeed hard for those who lack self-restraint, but if you keep striving earnestly in the right way, you can reach it. One of my favorite teachers, Sri Nisgaratta Maharaj, who lived in Mumbai and made cigarettes in the slums, became enlightened. He met his guru, and his guru said to him, just focus on the phrase, I am. Nothing else, just I am. And through that process, he became realized. He started to walk to the Himalayas, and then he realized there was no point because it was what he was looking for was inside him. And so he went back to the slums of Mumbai to make cigarettes. And at one point, they're like, we want to build an ashram around you. And he goes, please do not do that because then I'll become a slave to it. <laughs> and he was really loud, and he smoked, and he would get crazy kind of with people. But his wisdom and his philosophical debates became published and spread all through the world and you know very famous book i am Sri Nisgarata maharaj super profound and he always emphasized that if you just strive towards the path with earnestness authentically seeking the i am you will reach it and i think this is something that can give us faith right Krishna is saying the same thing. With honest effort, you will discover. And Christ says, he who seeks, what does he say? Someone tell me. He says, I can't remember, but you all know the phrase. It's very commonplace. Uh, he who, 
Man, I can't believe I forgot that one. <laughs> All right, let's say So Jesus says to people, Seek and you shall find. Okay, God bless me. <laughs> Arjuna says, Krishna, what happens to the man who, with faith but no self-control, wanders from the path of yoga before he becomes mature? Hasn't he lost both the here and the hereafter? Doesn't he, rootless and insubstantial, fade like a cloud in the sky? This is the doubt that troubles me. Krishna, I beg you, please help me, for only you can remove this doubt from my mind. The blessed Lord Krishna says, Neither here nor hereafter, Arjuna, is the man lost. No one who does good work will come to an evil end. That's encouraging. Reaching the heaven of the righteous after uncountable years, that man will be born again to parents who are upright and wealthy. All right. Yoga is the path to wealth. <laughs> he may even be born to parents who have practiced yoga and are wise, though a birth as fortunate as this is more difficult to obtain. Uh -huh. There he regains the knowledge acquired in his former life, and from that point on, Arjuna, he strives toward the ultimate goal. Unconsciously, he returns to his former practice. Even a man who asks about yoga goes beyond formal religion. And this is very much also a Tibetan premise, this idea that we're picking up where we left off, that in the here and now, this is all that there is. And maybe there's different manifestations of this here and now where things look different, but our connection to even those places is still, that place there is still here, if you're following me. It's only here. And that we can reconnect to the knowledge acquired in our former life. And in the Tibetans, there's this, this is part of their evolutionary mythology, right? When I say that, their mythology is based on evolution, that there's no moral absence because we are coming to this place of unity and so compassion becomes of the utmost importance and the absolute necessity because you reap what you sow. Even if you don't believe in karma, you reap what you sow. I feel is such a universally accepted principle and even physics, right, says uh, there's an equal and opposite reaction to every action. There's an interconnectivity to things. What we do impacts and sends out waves and ripples, and frequency that becomes absorbed and acted upon, digested, and put back out into the world. So what we are sending out is coming back to us. And so this constant emphasis on our practice and no one who does good work will come to an evil end. And on some level, this is an interesting idea because what does this mean for, for instance, we're talking about concentration camp in Russia and, and uh, Poland, these like horrific crimes against humanity. What does this mean? Right? What is, you know, or the Tibetan situation, right? These are lamas that are all of a sudden being tortured it's, it's difficult to wrap our mind around i don't have an easy answer for it and i don't have a answer that would even ever remotely condone it or 
allow for one to close their heart off to it because that's not what the answer is supposed to do but perhaps there is a way where we can understand that suffering is a necessary medicine in the path of becoming conscious and aware and without it we would remain troglodytes or similar to them just bumping into other objects without awareness of our impact and it requires tremendous suffering just as tremendous pressure to create a diamond ideas and things here I don't have answers more questions I could say unconsciously he returns to his former practice even a man who asks about yoga goes beyond formal religion striving with constant effort cleansing himself of all sin through many lifetimes at last he attains the ultimate goal the man of yoga is greater than ascetics or the learned learned or those who perform the rituals therefore be a man of yoga my son practice yoga sincerely with single-minded devotion love me with perfect faith bring your whole self to me so yoga here is our an understanding linked to our action an inner state that leads to an action that ideally amplifies and enhances that inner state of equanimity and indifference towards success or failure and i i like this premise of rebirth and because it's an interesting question right when you look at perhaps like where you started when you were a kid and where you are now why did you wind up where you are and why did that other person wind up there people in the same similar situations why did one go all the way to do that another one went all the way to do this in total opposite directions and why does it feel oftentimes that when a child comes into the world that they're already oriented and gravitating towards things the lakota to come back to it you know they say wakantanka great mystery this is a great mystery so i personally do subscribe to the idea of reincarnation as depicted here it seems and feels intuitively to me that's something that just makes a lot of sense this idea that you just pick up where you left off and for an intellectual kind of uh breakdown of the logic behind it uh, the tibetan buddhist teacher who i am a big fan of who lives very close to me and his name is escaping me i'm going to pull it up here right and robert thurman that's his name wrote a book infinite life and he breaks it down in a very beautiful way and i've talked about it on this podcast but there's this idea right you know i was at a cosm chapel of sacred mirrors just to break off from well to finish that thought robert thurman has a very beautiful intellectual breakdown of it and when i was at chapel of sacred mirrors alex gray's place alex gray was talking and he kind of put it in a very similar a little more simple way but he said you know all of life emerged right from the big bang from scientifically speaking and at some moment all of us were just this pond scum and look at us now 
it's incredible. <laughs> you know, he says it with this in tremendous enthusiasm and, and like bewilderment and wonder and awe. And I think this is kind of like what we're trying to get to is this understanding that everyone is here now, was here then, and that's why the Tibetans don't. They actually, it's very interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm praying to the ancestors. And I'm not mocking that at all. But that for the Tibetan culture, there are no ancestors. The people that are here now were the people that were here prior. It's this, everyone was your mother. Everyone was your father. You were everyone's mother. You were everyone's father. As the Buddhists say, how long have you been here? Imagine a bird flying over Mount Everest with a napkin in its beak. And every eight years or so, it kind of scrapes off like a fraction of a centimeter of dust. And the amount of time it would take for that bird to erode the entire mountain is how old you are and how long you've been in this process. That's how long it is. Infinity. This idea that there is the infinite, that nothing cannot exist because there is something. The idea that, oh, no, there, there's an end or a stop, that makes, that's impossible given just what is present within us at this moment. How can something become nothing? These are thought experiments. I don't want to get too heady into it, but the premise being that your actions have repercussions. Choose wisely how you fight and what you are fighting against. The enemy is not outside of you. If you choose that route, you will plunge more deeply into ignorance and you will reap what you sow. That being said, take up arms in the path of yoga to bring light and illumination, wisdom of equanimity to your experience here and now. No step taken on the path is ever wasted. Do not be in a rush. This is an eternal process. But do not waste time. Do not waste this precious human life, the opportunity of a lifetime is this war, and to be a warrior for a righteous war such as this. And do not fear death, do not fear loss, do not crave success nor fa or fear failure. Embrace whatever circumstances arrive arise in front of you and ask not what can I get out of life but what is it that life is trying to get out of me and trying to get me to bend and reshape and reconfigure and understand and activate how can I joyfully participate in the world of sorrow and bring forth compassion and peace and unity and love and harmony and creativity and equanimity and moderation in my actions, speech, conduct, behavior for the benefit of others. At the same time, remain rooted and connected to just being a human being and sustain the practice of humbling myself to the earth. 
I no longer want my title. You can just call me Worm. Life lessons. <laughs> How to find peace, understanding that everything that ever was will disappear. Transient temporal nature of everything and everyone, including myself. How to move from the forms of time into the dimension of the eternal. How do I act on this path of yoga? We shall continue. Thank you for listening. Oh.